Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordic Podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Kevin Albrecht. Kevin is a finance technology leader with 20 years of experience in software engineering, product management and leadership, including 10 years in finance. In the recent past, he's worked with companies such as Klarna and Betelow and many more. Currently is the co-founder and CEO of PFC. Uh, PFC is a new way of relating to money. It's more than spend more than a spending account more than a debit card and it helps you understand how you're actually doing. Kevin has been a constant friend of the podcast, but this time I wanted him to share some of his failures, learns and lessons lessons for our listeners. So today we'll be talking about 20 years in tech from engineer to CEO. Kevin, how are you doing today? Good. Glad to be here. Good stuff. Where where can we find you today? You're in Stockholm at the moment. Yeah, I'm in Stockholm and uh, it's actually very hot today, very hot and humid today. It's a strange thing to say about Stockholm, but it's true today. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's the, I don't know if it's um, people in Sweden and people in Britain are very similar. In the, we're always complaining about the weather. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> a common thing here. <laughs> yeah. Um, good stuff. So, Kevin, really appreciate you jumping on the podcast today. Um, and when I was speaking with Kevin uh, to discuss what we could uh, talk about, he was very passionate about wanting to share some of his uh, kind of lessons, learns uh, for all those listeners out there who may be on a similar road to Kevin at the moment or are thinking about setting up a company and stuff like that. So uh, we're going to go through this and hopefully we'll get some good tips um, and some good stories. I'll try so, my best. <laughs> so Kevin, uh, I suppose just give us, um, I know I've introduced yourself, but if you could give us your introduction, that'd really help as well. Uh, yeah. So I began, I'm actually from the US originally, but I've been living in Sweden for 12 years. Um, I began my career in as an engineer, software engineer. So I have a degree in computer science from uh, USF in Florida. Um, and I worked as engineer in the US for my first half of my career. And I moved to Sweden, like I said, about 12 years ago. And then, yeah, life's taken me in a, a different path. I don't, I don't think when I was, uh, when I was in university, I thought I'd be a software engineer my whole career. Mm-hmm. And uh, life happened, I guess, and uh, it didn't end up that way. Both, well, it's been a, it's been a crazy ride as it, as it happens. Well, I suppose, Kevin, a lot of the people who are listening now will be in the software engineer position. Yeah. So tell us some of the defining moments that if you look back at these last 20 years, kind of, and you look at yourself now, what, what, what shaped this? Yeah. What are the defining moments? What's happened? Mm, well, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search even further back if it's okay. Cause I'm yep. thinking like maybe to start, I probably, I think I learned computer programming the way a lot of people about my age did. I mean, I'm a little over 40 right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned programming by using QBasic, which was this uh, programming language installed on MS-DOS uh, computers back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, my father had installed this um, MS-DOS on this computer for us. Our first computer was a, you know, it was a Packard Bell 486DX2. I can't believe I remember that still. Somehow I remember that. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so I, I, uh, I discovered that there was this programming language on there and I had no idea what programming languages were, mm-hmm. but I just played around with it a lot and then kind of fell in love with creating little programs that printed text on the screen and made little graphics. And uh, I basically, I, I think I was around 11 years old around when I discovered that. And at that point, I think I, think I told my, my dad that uh, I wanted to go to school for computer science sometime soon after that. So I kind of knew the direction I was going to go in pretty, pretty early um, and really fell in love with the with 
you know, everything around computer programming. And, and so when you're going, um, you went to university, say in Florida. Yeah. So when you go to university, what do you study? What do you learn? And what are you thinking the moment you leave those doors? Mm. Well, I, I mean, I studied computer science, um, standard computer yeah. science curriculum. I mean, I learned about, about the, yeah, everything you learn in computer science from hardware to software and different kinds of programming languages and techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably the thing that, that I didn't learn is the most interesting thing that I'm not sure if this has changed since. I mean, this is now over 20 years ago, I was in, in university, but you know, back then they didn't really teach me anything about how to build working software. And, and I think that's probably the thing that's the, that I, I learned you kind of have to learn the hard way as a programmer uh, after you leave school is that you know how to program, but creating working software for people to use in real life, whether it's for uh, you know, government or or for um, for private companies, you don't really know how to do that when you leave school. And uh, you really have to learn it along the way. So it's... Uh, so were you, were you doing stuff uh, while you are at university to practice that? Um, or did you... Uh, come out of university and, and and go, oh, I need to actually do this now and it's going to be difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in the university, I mean, I did do some projects for for like a little bit of money here and there with with friends of family, that kind of thing. I mean, I made a, I remember I made a, a program to help a local pharmacy, uh, a pharmacist group keep track of the membership and, and collect dues for the members, that kind of thing. That was probably the first thing I made that was actually used by, by a business. Um, and that was, I mean, not that that wasn't the real project. That was a real project. But I think what's different from that versus working in the real world is I made this by myself. And mm. and it's a very, you know, it's a job that I did myself. I didn't have to work with other people to make it happen. I had to talk to the customer, I guess, but uh, but I didn't have to collaborate to make this happen. And in the real world, that's almost never the case. It's so rare that you create a piece of software without collaborating with someone. And, and I think that's what software development is really about in the real world is figuring out how to how to collaborate and build something bigger than one person can build by themselves. I think it was um, Elon Musk has been very um, prominent in this discussion about, listen, you can learn anything anywhere now, mm. so you don't technically need to go to university. How important was university for you? And could you imagine being where you are now without it? Mm, good question. I mean, I, Definitely a lot of people talk about universities may be outdated now. Um, I definitely learned a lot, though, going to university, not just about computer programming, because I, I mean, I was I could program before I went to university. So it's not as if I, I learned how to program there. But but I think I got a much broader understanding of what uh, of what the whole the whole uh, industry and what the whole um, what computer science as a whole is and what you could do. I mean, everything from how does it interact with hardware to how microprocessors work. Uh, to writing compilers. I mean, that, that was a, a fun thing you learn. And I, all these things, you may not use them directly after university, but I think it makes you a, a fuller person. And I, I definitely learned the things I, I, I reuse later in the context of, of something else. So, you know, I'm maybe I'm building a tool to try to process data that I get put in a database. And I'm like, wait, I can use this knowledge I learned about writing compilers to, to, uh, to write this processing tool instead of reinventing the wheel from scratch, you know? Hmm. Um, so I, I think it was definitely valuable. Uh, if it's still valuable today, I think it's, I think maybe it's, it's a better question now than ever was before, since there's yeah. a lot of ways to learn programming and the skills around it, um, on, on online universities, things like that. And I, I'm sure if you're a self-driven learner, you can learn everything 
you learn there without going to the university. Mm -hmm. But I think the one thing university does is it forces you to learn things that you might not have chosen to learn. Mm -hmm. Like you could, if you can choose exactly what you're going to teach yourself, you know, you can go really deep. But would I have chosen to learn about how uh, risk-based processes work? Uh, probably not. I wouldn't have even thought of to teach, teach myself that. Kevin, I'm keen to um, look at your career. Yeah. And that moment we left a university um, and people will, especially in uh, Sweden, where uh, most of our listeners are based, very entrepreneurial in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of them already thinking about where their careers are going, how long they should stay at a company for before setting up. I suppose talk us kind of through, I mean, you've ended up owner, yeah, CEO of PFC. Talk us about some of the defining moments that have led you towards that and what lessons have you learned which allowed you to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the the defining moments, I only realized how defining they were afterwards. You know, life happens to you and then it's only later you kind of realize, oh, wow, that really that really shaped my thinking later on. Um, all right, so a couple, I'm trying to think of a couple moments that happened along the way. So I, I think one that made me think about teamwork for the first time was... And I had worked in teams most of my career, but hadn't really thought about what that meant or the complexities of making a team work. And, and then I joined a team at a company when I came to Sweden where a team had never worked in, in any kind of, uh, of collaborative way. So they were like six, seven guys who smart developers, but had never worked together. And there was no, there was no product owner or manager of the team, this kind of seven guys in the room that are really smart. And I, I realized suddenly that, Hey, we're not really accomplishing anything though. And and so I tried to like start in my naive way, tried to, to organize the group a bit and, and tried to start planning an agile way. And I realized I had to teach myself how agile methodologies work. Like I, I had used them before, but I had been a, a user instead of a, a creator of agile processes, right? So I, I taught myself okay, how does Scrum work? How does Kanban work? Things like that. And then and I, that led me to become a team leader for the team like a formal team leader eventually. And so that real, that was a moment that really switched my thinking where you, know, you may use these methodologies, but not really understand how they work until you have to implement them yourself. And I, I did it only out of a, a really a need that this team had to figure out a way to work together. And uh, and it worked out really nicely, actually, in the end, that, that team. I think they figured out how to work together really well with just a little bit of of um, a little bit of smart processes someone else had already invented. Um, and what role were you brought into the team and how long did this process happen? Yeah, I joined the team as a as a software engineer. Yeah. Um, but then over it must have been around six months or so that uh, I kind of transitioned to becoming the team leader of the team. Um, and I, I did it because not because I wanted to be the leader of the team per se. It was that I really felt like we were we were all really smart, but somehow we weren't producing anything. Nothing nothing valuable was coming out of the team, and and I was really. I was really frustrated, like, hey, why, why can't we create anything great? I mean, and so I think that everyone in the team, I think, felt the same way, like, what's going wrong? Um, but no one quite knew how to, including myself, didn't really know how to improve it until we just tried these these methodologies. I mean, I think I think we I think maybe a, one thing it taught me that's a valuable lesson, I think, overall, is that there's often you often think that you're a special case that uh, your situation doesn't really apply the 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 process someone else created, they don't really apply to you because you're special or your team's special or situation special. But there's so much that people have already invented out there. And if you have a chance to learn from an expert, you don't need to reinvent everything from scratch. You can kind of use the best of what someone else has already figured out. And so I've tried to do that throughout my career is, okay, think about what's who would be really smart in this area? Who who or what group of people or what book can say, can teach me how to improve in some way and then try it and maybe adjust it, but start with the best practice first rather than start from nothing. What... Well 
I'm sure there's a, um, some of our listeners now that are hearing this and thinking, yeah, I'm in a group of really clever people and we're not getting anything out there. Yeah. Um, what do you advise to those people um, to do first? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first, I think sometimes people think that the best way to solve some problem like this is to throw everything away. But but I think often it's it's really hard and to get to get a whole group of people to agree to something is really difficult if you say everything we're doing is wrong. So I'd say choose the most important thing to improve. So if, you're, if your team can't figure out how to... Uh, how to release something every every sprint, let's say. Work on that and, and try and try to learn from an expert here, you know. How do you break down user stories to be smaller than a sprint? Or or how do you break down a big technical problem to be small enough to work on in a, in a two-week period? But say try to find something reasonable and, and small to change instead of trying to throw away everything at once. Because uh, it's usually it's really hard to get a, a group of people to all agree simultaneously that everything we're doing is wrong. Someone there must must think it works really well already. So if we can make some make some iterative improvements, you know, to the, to the process. And for those people that are listening to this and saying, oh, well, that means I'm going to be the one that's going to have to work extra. I'm going to be one that's going to have to take responsibility, yet I'm mm. not paid for that. Mm. What benefit did that moment at that Swedish company that you stepped up allowed you to become the person you are? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, you it, it, taking on fixing a problem and taking on more responsibility isn't usually uh, rewarded in the moment. Mm. Uh, it usually takes yourself saying, you know, I'm not going to be rewarded for this, but it's worth it for the value itself. Mm. And and I think that uh, if you're impatient and think that you have to be rewarded before you've improved something, I think it's going to, it might serve you in the short term, but it's definitely not, you're not going to improve. You're not going to learn anything. And so I think, I think you have to decide that a problem is worth solving and decide that I'm going to try my best to try and solve it. And with people, hopefully you can do it with someone else. Cause if you do it by yourself, it's really, it can be really hard to do it, do something new by yourself, but find like-minded people who want to help improve the situation and, and improve it yourself. And then eventually, I think if you learn something, and that's what I've learned throughout my mistakes and uh, and successes as well is is if I admit, take that make that choice and and improve something uh, and maybe not get the credit at first mm. I've always learned something at least and uh, learning to me is it's 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 really its own reward you will be, be able to get that value out of it in the long term yeah I was gonna say monetize your learns later in life yeah yeah I mean you may not be maybe you don't get that raise right now because you agreed to take on trying to manage the team a little bit more or organize the team but someone will realize it afterwards and, or you'll take that learning somewhere else and get that raise somewhere else <laughs> uh, one of the things you mentioned in there kevin uh, was a lot a lot of problems nowadays have already been solved you don't need to resolve it reinvent the wheel and you talked about uh, reading extra reading or support networks um, how important during your career has building up a solid support network been for you? You know, it's something that I have never made a conscious choice to try to build a support network. Um, I have I've thought about it a lot often. And then I've and every time I think about it, I'm like, well, I, I kind of already have that. And I, I think that the way that uh, the way that I ended up building that support network unconsciously has been when someone who's really interesting inspires me, I want to learn from them. And uh, I have asked them questions or, or um, offered to uh, offered to help them where I can. You know, maybe it's introduced into a new job or maybe it's uh, speak somewhere or whatever it is. Build, connect them to someone else. Um, and if you help someone without the expectation that they're going to help you back, then they will help you back eventually, actually, mm. most times. <laughs> so uh, I, I think you have to, I think you need to be, to really build a, a real support network, 
you have to decide, you have to do it not for the purpose of trying to like extract value from other people, but as no, I want to help other people. And if you help other people, you're going to, you're going to be building mutual connections. So I mm -hmm. think, I mean, I'm sure you can fake it. You, you could just like try to pretend like you like these people and, and pull value out of them. But eventually people, people learn this and they see that you're a, it's your, you're not really a friend of theirs and you're not really, you don't really care about them really. Mm. Yeah. So a couple of bits of advice already. So for those software engineers or for anyone in their jobs thinking about um, something larger in the future for their career, step up now. You're yeah. rewarded in the future. Um, add value to people you meet. I suppose that's the second beat. Add, add value and the value will come back at some point. Um, you mentioned one this this one instance uh, when you were at the um, Swedish company. Um, we'll talk about any other defining moments that you can think of, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, uh, I kind of talked about how what led me to become a team leader was kind of mm. the realizing the team wasn't working very well and, and they needed someone to to help uh, organize things. I mean, I didn't, like I said, at first I didn't, I didn't become a leader. I helped organize things. And then because I was organizing things, you become a leader, not necessarily a manager, but a leader. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so for a few years, I was a, a team leader, uh, but then something else happened where I was with a team that was actually working with good processes, but they were this group of people in this team, a different team I was working with had worked on a project for, I think it was like eight months or so. And then they discovered that the, the project they were working on was not valuable to anyone. No one cared about this thing they were building. And they discovered this when someone else, other team was like, Hey, what are you working on? And, uh, and they told them and the person mm -hmm. said, Oh, that's not, no, no one wants that. They've, they've chosen some other piece of software already. You don't need to build that. And so this, <laughs> this, these people were doing this, these engineers were doing a great job building the thing they thought was important, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it wasn't important. And, uh, that led me to, to realize that good product management is actually really important. Mm -hmm. um, and pretty soon I, I offered to join the product management group. Uh, this is at Klarna yeah. uh, back in, oof, must've been back in 2012, 2013, sometime around there. Um, and so I offered to join the product group there. And, and it was really out of the, the realization that, that building great software isn't just about building software itself in a really good way. Mm -hmm. It's also about, are you solving real problems? Um, and I think that product management, when it's done really well, that's what it is. It's, it's finding out is the problem that we're working on, is it an important problem? Or is there another problem we should be focusing on instead? And I, I really started to appreciate that when I saw people working on you know, not the valuable things. What, um, did you have any background, like what was your background within products? You see people come into, product manager now is a very established job, a lot yeah. of courses, a lot of theory out there. Um, you can start the career off in product management and work your way up. Just give us the context of, you wanted to get into that group, yeah. Did you have any, any experience? What was your experience? How did you do it? Yeah. I mean, I think just in the same way that I, I kind of slowly transitioned from being an engineer to being an engineering team leader, mm -hmm. it was it wasn't a it didn't change overnight. I mean, at one point I got the official title of product manager, but really I started working on it earlier. Yeah. And I think I really had I really had two mentors there that that led me to to um to become a product manager. I mean, one was my my direct boss for a while, and he was always urging me to do it a little bit more and to learn this next thing, and uh, and he showed me some really interesting techniques around. How to take a big backlog full of really technical tasks and okay ask well, why why are we doing these tasks not just what are we doing but why are we doing it and uh i think it kind of trained me along the way 
to uh, yeah. to do that. And he's actually still a really good friend of mine after that. This can we can we get a shout out? Yeah, his name is uh, Ted Bowman. Yeah, he's well, uh, a good friend of mine. Lives like two blocks away from me now. But yeah, uh, he taught me a lot on product. And then um, you know another another guy around the same time too. He's actually an, a book author. Um, he gave a presentation at Klarna on on different product techniques. And he really inspired me as well to think about, again, think about connecting the real reason you're doing work to what you're doing. Um, his name is Goiko Adzik. So he, he's written a couple of books on, on topics like um, he wrote a book called Impact Mapping that I think is a really great book, really simple and really great book. But um, I think he, after he presented this idea to, to my group at, at Klarna, uh, it really made me think like, I realized everything you're doing, if you can't connect it to the, to the why, then you're really maybe what you're doing isn't important. And so I think even if I don't necessarily always use the exact techniques that he taught me, I think I always think about everything like, okay, we're doing some action. Okay, what's the what's the why for? And if you understand that why, then you can understand if it's really valuable or if it's just a, uh, it really it just feels fun or, or feels valuable. How difficult is that to get across to other people? You mean the, the why? Yeah, yeah, the why, yeah. Mm. So obviously understand it yourself, you know the techniques, you can link it. Yeah. Pe people are challenging. No, definitely, man. And, and, I, and I, I think that the you're not going to convince everyone if you come into it saying, I already know the why mm. and just just no, follow the why that I'm telling you all. <laughs> uh, that's not going to work very well. But but I think that the, the the way you should approach and the way I've tried to approach it is you, your job is to discover the why often as a group. Um, and, and I think this just comes down to if you if you're trying to figure out the why why you're doing something, it kind of means you also need to define a goal, a shared goal together. Right. Mm -hmm. And just the act of defining that goal is a as a team building activity a real team building activity because you're, you're building uh, trust together that you understand why you're doing it together you agree on it in the end this the shared goal you have or at least you or at least you agree that it's a shared goal maybe you don't agree on the conclusion but if you agree it's going to be the goal of the group um, so i think i think it's about building the uh, building the shared agreement on what the goal you have is and then once you have that then you understand the what that kind of comes out of that okay so we've at this point in your career We've got the fundamentals of software engineering, some practical elements, some fintech experience, team leadership, um, product realization. Yeah. What's next? Well, I think next was in, in just practical terms is that I, I was a product manager for a few years. And then I realized that, that uh, I, had, I had learned a lot of really interesting skills and as a product manager. And I was probably a little bit uh, too cocky. I said, <laughs> okay, I know. I know everything you're to know about how to build uh, a fintech company. And of course, mm. I was completely wrong, by the way. <laughs> but I thought I knew how to build everything about building fintech company. And so I decided to uh, try to start my own thing with some some of my friends yeah. um, and coworkers. And we had this goal of building a building a bank from scratch. And we're like, oh, you know, we'll we'll build this thing. We'll build it in six months. We'll we'll launch. It'll be it'll be great. And uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert! It was it completely was a disaster. I mean, I, we all learned that we we uh, we underestimated the difficulty of raising money. We underestimated the difficulty of, of finding a good niche, of uh, of getting the the required uh, regulations in place. Um, so I mean, a lot of good lessons. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to learn the hard way, right? And I think I think anyone who's tried to start a company can share a whole bunch of of, uh, of lessons learned around all the mistakes they've made. Because I don't think anyone just does it right. Nobody. And, and almost every company that exists out there, it's been this evolution of some great success and a tons of horrible mistakes along the way. And then learnings and success again and, and failures again. And hopefully there's more failures and success, more successes than failures, but, uh, but often not, right? How, how did it feel at the time, though? Yeah, so you're creating this bank, um, you realize much more difficult than anticipated. 
yeah. for several reasons. How, how did it feel at the time? Did, did Was the knock or uh, was uh, the fall heavy or were you at the point in your career where you knew what to do next? Or just talk us through that moment. Yeah. No, I think the realization is a, it was kind of a slow realization that it wasn't working. I mean, uh, someone said, and I can't remember who this was, but it says that companies fail when the founders lose uh, lose energy, when they run out of energy, not when you run out of money. Right. And uh, I think it's really true because if you, you know, if you have the energy, you'll find ways to keep it going. You might be limping along like a you know a zombie, but, but <laughs> keep going. But eventually, when you when you run out of energy, that's when the that's when it falls apart. And I think that's what for that first bank I tried to solve. That's kind of happened to us. We we just realized it was not working. So we we tried a couple of different ways to make it work that didn't work out. Um, but it was it was definitely a de- depressing time at first. I mean, you you put your your life and your money. You know, I, all my savings I spent on on supporting myself while working on the uh, for a year on this uh, this startup. Mm-hmm. So you you know it's a huge monetary loss. And then, and then also a huge, uh, because of that, a, a huge uh, emotional hit on you too. Um, but then I, uh, I kind of stuck with the same idea. Like I, I knew I still wanted to try to create some kind of something around banking because I knew that technology was going to continue uh, to revolutionize banking. I mean, it, it's inevitable, just like it's revolutionizing every other industry. Yeah. Um, so eventually I found a different group of co-founders and, and uh, ended up building the, the company that became EFC now. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and like it's not, it's never been a, a, a straight, like start here and end up successful with a success at the end, right? It's a whole bunch of ups and downs along the way. Um, that is, that is founding a company, I guess. So where did, um, where did the initial idea to, to go again? Like whose crazy idea? Yeah. After all the heartbreak and the financial loss, who's, whose idea why did you put yourself into that that again is it something within you kevin or like what why did you do it again do you know what i mean i mean truth i think well I, i've always liked the since i left uh, my my job and became a founder I, I always wanted to start a bank but it wasn't the it wasn't the day-to-day motivator for me i mean mm. the, the day-to-day motivator was always the people i was with i mean the at first it was a group of friends i left i left my previous job with uh, start the company. And then some of them continued to the next phase as we kind of transitioned to a new company and then, and then evolved to another company. And then met new people I really liked working with. So I, I think it was always, it was always primarily about day to day. I should say the, the motivation was about the people I worked with. Um, if you have great co-founders, you can get through a lot of, a lot of crap that comes your way. Mm. Uh, if you, if your co-founders aren't, aren't competent or aren't, uh, or aren't with you, it's going to be really tough. But, uh, but I always had great people I was working with. And even when everything was looking like it was going to be a disaster, when it, sometimes it was a disaster, you know, people I was always there to like, you know, complain about with, you know, oh, this someone's not working the right way or something's broken or, you know, there's always someone to like be there with you. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine trying to be a solo entrepreneur. I think for me, it's about the, you gotta, ha- I gotta have a partner or partners who can ride that with me, ride the roller coaster with me. What, what have kind of been, I was listening to, um, Sebastian over at Clown is one of his podcasts recently, and he said early on uh, when they were building Klarna, they and this was really early on, early on mm-hmm. in the, the first six months, everyone had to agree we're all doing 80 hours or something of that ilk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was more hours rather than competence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was there any kind of lessons you learned when you were building PFC? Uh, that allowed it to be successful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think around around working hours, and there's a lot of ways to look at that. But, but if you think about 
the shared amount of uh, commitment. I think that's the way I look at this. It's about shared yes. commitment. And if you, the group of co-founders are always, always, always with both in the that first startup I tried and then other, the other evolutions along the way. Um, I've had great people who I could feel like had the same level of commitment that I did. If there's a huge difference in commitment level, then disaster is going to happen. I mean, if one person's like, we're going to work hundred hours a week, and one person's like, no, I have, I need to work 30 hours a week. I'm going to work 10 hours a week on this other thing. It's going to be a really hard mismatch. And Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of friends of mine who've been in different startups and, and uh, they found themselves often like hurt by having, you know, one co-founder who is working half time while they're in while themselves, their entire life's dedicated to this thing. And that's, that's really difficult problem to, uh, to overcome. I think so. I think you have to have the same level of commitment you're agreed to before. Um, otherwise you're just going to, you're going to fight over, over that differences. What's been the most challenging moments with uh, PFC? Yeah, I think probably the, the most challenging moment was when our, our card issuer. So, you know, in FinTech, uh, you have a lot of third parties you work with mm -hmm. uh, and you can't do anything yourself in finance and FinTech. You have to have partners. You have, par you work with banks, you work with other FinTech companies. Um, and so we had a partner that helped us create a, a MasterCard debit card that mm -hmm. that is the kind of the core of of a of a banking experience in the core of pfc and uh when we first built pfc that partner was wirecard the mm -hmm. now infamous german bank <laughs> um nice. and yeah and if you don't know if you haven't heard of wirecard back in i think it was june 2020 they had a disastrous uh collapse uh, fraud and mismanagement um and basically the whole, the whole, the whole company went, uh, went bankrupt within a few, a few weeks of, of these fraud, this fraud becoming known. There's actually a really, a book I'm currently reading that is coming out about this topic by a, a British journalist, uh, Dan McCrum, mm. uh, about, about the wire card scandal. So it's, uh, if you, if you're interested in learning about that, read that, mm. but, um, that's anyway, so PFC was using, uh, was using Wirecard and, uh, when they went bankrupt and. You know, the part of Wirecard we worked with was not part of the scandal, but the company was a really big company. And so we had, you know, it worked fine for us until suddenly it, it was bankrupt. And then the whole company was at risk suddenly, right? Because when your debit card doesn't work and you're a bank, that's, that's pretty disastrous, right? <laughs> and uh, I mean, so, so what do we do? I mean, there was a, there was a moment of panic where we thought, well, this might be the end. I mean, we can't run this company if we don't have a debit card. Um, but then I think pretty quickly within a few hours, we just like, okay, yes, this is a disaster, but what can we do about it? So we, we started breaking down the problem into small steps. Okay. We need to find this new partner and we need to find this new partner. Uh, here's how we'll communicate to our customers. Here's how we will handle problems while they're winding down Wirecard. And, uh, I mean, amazingly, we actually managed to, to fix the problem within three months and keep the company running, but it was, I, I'd say about three to four months where we, you know, you just don't know, is it going to say, we're going to fix this or not? Um, and we just decided we're going to fix it no matter what. And so you just, you just don't accept that, uh, that you might fail. You just do your best. And, uh, everyone at the company worked so hard for those, those six months after Wirecard went bankrupt to try to replace everything that was broken because of them. And we did a, did a great job. And it was, it was sad because even people at Wirecard we worked with, they weren't even involved in the, the fraudulent part. I mean, they were, as far as we could tell, you know, just trying to do a great job, but they're part of the company. But uh, when a disaster like that happens, you know, it, it hurt a lot of fintechs that use them. I mean, uh, hundreds of fintechs throughout Europe and the world used Wirecard. Big banks used them. I mean, it was uh, it's quite a disaster. What do you think? What do you think the lesson is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> one lesson is if you if you can figure it ahead of time, don't work with a bank that's going to go bankrupt because of a scandal. <laughs> yeah. Don't but, work, uh, work with fraudulent people. <laughs> yeah, but that's really that's really hard. 
to figure out, obviously, especially when most people aren't, aren't yeah. fraudulent, but, uh, but no, but seriously, I think that the, I think the real lesson was how we recovered from it. I think it was about quickly moving from panic mode to focus mode. You know, we broke down, we, we knew the goal. Everyone had the same goal, replace them as a partner as soon as possible. So the customers have a great experience still and don't have, don't have too many problems along the way. We just took that. We knew that goal. We said, okay, let's break this down to really small tasks and, and worked on them one at a time. I mean, it, you know, in a few days we had signed new partners, new, uh, technical partners and new banking partners to replace them. Um, and then we had started building technical systems. We had communicated with customers and, and I mean, there's so much to do in those six months. So I think it was just breaking these things down to small tasks and focusing. Is, do you reckon it's probably, um, probably a lot of your career that has allowed you in that moment and a lot of other people's careers by the sounds of it that mm -hmm. allowed you to so quickly turn it around. Um, but yeah, no, it sounds like a, sounds like an a cr incredible achievement. One that's probably taught you a lot of things and probably allowed the company to realize we can get through anything now fingers crossed nothing else like that comes up yeah but exactly for our listeners um just tell us a bit more about um pfc what's going on at the moment yeah and we're continuing on our on our on our path we've had for for several years now uh we're building a a bank for everyday people yeah. uh, a full banking solution we're not a bank right now but we're building that's our goal is to to build out a full banking solution um and you know, our, our overall idea is we want to help people have, have better financial self-confidence. You know, I think self financial self-confidence is something that everyone wants. I mean, whether you're young or old or really experienced in finance or not, you can always be more self-confident. And that's our goal is to help people uh, get that self-confidence by providing them tools to do so. Um, thinking about um, one of the final questions I've got for you, Kevin, is you're obviously in a CEO, co-founder position, mm. and you've done this what for a few years now. Um, what kind of, when you began specifically as a founder, what have kind of been the lesson you've learned around people, around hiring people, around managing people, that if mm. someone was to get to the point in their career where they are owning a company or owning their second company, is there any tips, guidance you've, you've learned or hard lessons? Yeah. I mean, so many, I mean, I, I, I don't even know where to begin, but I'm, I kind of thought the, of one in particular, when you asked me the question, like, mm. and I think this, this applies to a lot of, a, a lot of my career is set the, the values and principles you want to work by before you think you're going to need them, because it's, it's easy to, to flail and, uh, try to, try to make up what you care about in the moment and get drug along by, by the problems that come and, uh, you know, when you're hiring a lot of people, for example, if you don't know the values and principles you, that are important to you or important to the company, you're going to hire people who, who are just, who are great people individually, but not, might not work together very well. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we have at PFC and other places, I've, I've tried to figure out what those values should be early on and hire people who agree with those values. Because if you agree with the values, then the details of the rules and policies and all that stuff that will go day to day are much easier when you already agree on the principle. Like, is collaboration important or is it not important? That's... Mm -hmm. You know, you got to decide which one of those is important. Maybe, maybe personal productivity is the most important thing and collaboration is not the most important or, or vice versa. Or, or maybe you think that, uh, you're about, you really value personal responsibility uh, or, or teamwork responsibility. Like which one of those do you, do you value? I think setting those kind of values is really important. And if you don't set values, there are values that are going to be there if you don't set them. Yeah. It's just that they won't be defined by you. They'll be defined by something that evolves and that could be good if you're lucky, or it could be really bad. 
<laughs> what um and and how 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 do you go about setting these values it's something that you have in your own head do you say listen at team this is how we're gonna do it um or have you got another way of doing it yeah i mean i guess there's two different situations i mean if you're starting from scratch if you're the first person in the company or you and a couple of co-founders you can define them from the beginning right yeah and you can say okay these are the values for the rest of the company's history um that may not always be the uh, available to you obviously <laughs> you're often <laughs> going to find yourself in a group of people already that exist already together and then you have to figure out a way to make values there so we, this actually happened to us a couple of years ago where we hadn't defined we had some values in place but we hadn't defined enough of them that that we could build a company around and so we already had a lot of people working at the company i mean not a lot but we had more than 10 um at that point and so we said okay we need to have we need to work together so we we held workshops uh, together, just sitting around a table and discussing and voting on things and different kinds of creative exercises to figure out what what do we care about. And then we chose four values that kind of represented the 10 people, mm -hmm. 10 or so people, and those became the ones we've been using since then. And I think they've, they've really held up over the time, even though the company's changed a lot. And we grew from 10 people or so back when we created them to, you know, we're over 40 now, um, and they still, they still work. Mm. Even though the, the way they're implemented has changed, the, the value itself is the same. So like we chose collaboration as a really important value. So whenever we're sitting around and we're saying like, well, here's a decision, here's a hard decision. We can say, okay, is, are we going to choose this one or this one? And which one of those is going to be better for collaboration? Okay. Let's choose that one then the better one for collaboration. So it's a decision-making tool in reality, right? Having a, having a clear value. How, how, how big is it? Um, how big of a part of your recruitment process do you have collaboration, for example, in it? Yeah, I mean, the the, the values that we've chosen are 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 definitely part there in the in the recruitment process. And we we talk about them during recruitment, and we look for them explicitly when we're recruiting people. Mm. Um, so it's really important. And I mean, I, I think you know one thing that made me really really realize the importance of setting values. I mean, earlier in my career, when I was an engineer, maybe 15 years ago, I probably would have said, "Oh, values are like this. It's nice." fuzzy corporate speak like it's not really important what's important is just getting the work done but um but i definitely changed my mind when i saw cultures that had that had negative values not intentionally said of course i, mean, I don't think anyone sits down and says we're going to have a culture where greed is the most important value <laughs> but uh unfortunately I, I worked at a place for not very long mm. that that was the that was the um uh, the main value and when when a, a value is is so deeply ingrained that is going to have huge impact on how people behave and uh if you have a, if you have negative values whether they're implicit or explicit you're going to have negative behaviors too mm. and that's when I, when I saw that in practice what what negative values effect really have on a company or a group of people working together I realized that, that they're really important and do you think these negative values are generally when values aren't set and therefore they've manifested yeah I mean I, I'm people anywhere you work with working with people that people have different things they care about and that's that's good that's normal you want that right i mean you mm. if everyone's the same then you're going to be very non-creative i mean the differences are where creativity comes from i think and and we all have every one of us me and you we all have positive traits and negative traits right yeah. and and uh if you don't set the values some of those negative traits of people are going to become shared maybe someone has anger issues and yelling at your coworkers becomes a value then <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one's, and of course they're not, they're not saying like, uh, oh, I want to value yelling at people uh, yeah. probably, but it's going to, comes out right. Or, or, or if greed is really a strong value, then maybe you're going to be willing to break the law in order to, uh, to make more money. Uh, and that situation I found myself in before, you know, in that kind of situation. So it's not just a, um, it's not just a nice thing to have. I think it really determines where an organization will go.
is it a company that's willing to break the law to get what it wants? Or, or is it one that says, you know, we value our place in society as well. And so we're not going to, we're not going to break the law in order to get ahead. For our listeners who um, are thinking about their next move, yeah, um, who value a company which puts collaboration at the heart of what they do, who is uh, on the way to building a bank, um, why else and kind of what opportunities are there over at PFC, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a growing company. We're hiring uh, engineers, of course, as always. Uh, and other roles too. I mean, then we have, you can go to our website and see all of our roles we're currently hiring for. Uh, our website is getpfc.com, G-E-T-P-F-C.com. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to see our job positions. So yeah, come join us. It's a really, it's a really fun, small environment. Perfect. And, and they can get you on uh, LinkedIn as well, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. I'm on LinkedIn as well or Twitter or you know, anywhere else you can find me. Good stuff. Uh, Kevin Albrecht, uh, you've been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you uh, for joining me. Um, really appreciate that, Kevin. Happy to be here. Thanks so much.